Has a saturated market got you down in the dumps? Is your story suffering from a bad case of the cliché? Then don't we have the solution for you! Introducing Metafixer, the all-new product from Craven Corp designed to take your narrative to the next level. Our patented trope-savvy technology requires only one application to take immediate effect, with follow-up doses recommended for that all-important nihilistic finish. In no time at all, your story will be as self-aware as a white male racial studies major and as cynical as a 14-year-old Rick and Morty fan. Call 800-555-1994 to start your free trial today. Warning. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, dependence on unreliable narration, excessive parody, and irrevocable dismantling of genre boundaries. Excessive application may lead to one-dimensional characters, headaches, narrative incoherence, and a burgeoning sense of existential dread. Craven Corp. does not take any responsibility for overuse of Metafixer or any market trends that may arise from such usage. Knife gloves sold separately. Fancy seeing you here. Welcome back to another episode of the Ghastly Podcast, the number one podcast for any horror fan, hosted by me, Joanna McNulty, and my wonderful co-host, Nicholas Hall. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hello there. Welcome back to yet another episode of our Meta Horror series, where we are looking at Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994, another instalment of the Nightmare on Elm Street series with probably the most meta-horror aspects of all of Wes Craven's films today. Obviously, last week, we literally looked at Scream. So that doesn't really make sense in terms of what I just said, but we're going in reverse chronological order. And so for Wes Craven, the new nightmare really was probably a new step in a very different direction. And I think New Nightmare gets sort of pushed aside a little bit in favour of Scream Mm. because obviously Wes Craven and perfected the formula that he can be seen utilizing in Scream, but the foundations of that formula are definitely present in this film. And I don't think it really gets the recognition that it does deserve because it is a very earnest depiction of a director of horror who has contributed a large amount to the slasher genre and really trying his best to come to terms with his own role Mm. in the process of constructing the genre and his own responsibilities as a director vis-a-vis his audience. No, I agree. And I also think that Scream perhaps is a film that seems a little bit more fun on the surface, perhaps, whereas New Nightmare is a little bit more Um, contemplative. There's a lot of astute commentary on the internet that talks about how this film does come off as quite angsty compared to Scream. And I think the seriousness comes from the fact that Wes Craven is returning to a franchise that he Mm. more or less cut ties with for quite a long period of time. Yeah. The bad man's getting awful close. You're going to have to make a choice. What kind of choice? Whether or not you're willing to play Nancy. One last time. No! Mommy! Cut the effect! 
somebody who can stop him? That person's you. Oh, I mean. But it was you that gave Nancy her strength. Nancy. Oh, Where's my son? So the film follows the story of Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy, the protagonist in the original Nightmare on Elm Street film who has moved into TV and is married to a special effects artist called Chase. Together, they have one son, Dylan. The film begins seemingly behind the scenes of a nightmare film. I was going to say a new nightmare film, then that is also what this film is called. So just to avoid any confusion, another nightmare film. As Chase and his co-workers work on a set of animatronic Freddy Krueger claws. The claws, however, come alive and kill Chase's co-workers and injure Chase as well on the hand. Oh. But it turns out, however, that this is all just have a dream. Except when she wakes up, it's because there's been an earthquake. And Chase seems to have injured his finger in exactly the same way he did in a dream. She dismisses this because of the earthquake, however, and goes on with her day. Heather is currently being pitched the idea of reprising the role of Nancy and goes to a meeting with New Line Cinema to discuss this. She has also had to deal with a phone call from a stalker singing Freddy Krueger's original creepy nursery rhyme down the phone at her in a sing-song voice. And when she gets home, she catches her son Dylan watching the original Nightmare on Elm Street on the TV. When she tries to stop him, he screams at her. Heather then discusses the situation with her husband, Chase, who reassures her. But when Dylan has had another episode another night, she begs Chase to come home from work early. He does, noting that his two co-workers haven't reported in for work. And while driving home, he falls asleep at the wheel and is maimed by Freddy's claw as he does. Though it initially seems like this is just another dream of Heather's, Police at the door assure her that it is very real, and she goes to the morgue to view Chase's body. She later collapses at his funeral, having another nightmare of Freddy Krueger taking Dylan away from her. Heather later meets with John Saxon, who urges her to seek medical help. Dylan becomes increasingly paranoid and refuses to sleep out of fear of Freddy Krueger. Heather calls Robert Englund, Freddy Krueger's actor, to ask for his help, but his answers are fairly cryptic and he soon actually becomes uncontactable himself. Heather takes Dylan to the hospital, where the doctor suspects she may be abusing him. Heather then visits Wes Craven, who explains the situation to her. Freddy Krueger is the representation of a supernatural entity that was kind of captured almost by the films. And now with the end of the series, because in the film previous to this one, Freddy Krueger dies, has now been released. And if this entity in the form of Freddy Krueger manages to kill Heather, then it will be able to fully emerge into the real world. Yet another earthquake happens and Dylan goes back to the hospital where he is now kept under close observation. His babysitter, Julie, tries to stop the nurses from sedating him. Dylan ends up falling asleep anyway from the sedative and dreams of Freddy murdering Julie, which of course entails that Julie has been killed off in real life. Dylan leaves the hospital, sleepwalking, and ends up being kidnapped by Freddy. Heather gives chase after she had returned home previously for Dylan's toy dinosaur. When she reached home, Heather's reality began to blur with that of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. John Saxon, for example, is now cast as her father, and she is dressed as Nancy, the main character. Heather embraces her role as Nancy, and Freddy is able to enter reality completely. Heather finds Dylan and together with him pushes Freddy into a furnace, destroying his dream world. At this point, both Dylan and Heather emerge from underneath Dylan's blankets. At the foot of the bed, Heather finds the film script. A thank you message for playing Nancy one last time is written on the inside page from Wes. 
Heather begins to read Dylan the script as a bedtime story. I think the most noticeable thing about this film mm. is how Wes Craven's little spiel about <laughs> Freddy Krueger as an embodiment of evil that contains a kind of ancient malignant force that is then released at the end of the franchise really does chime very closely with Cabin in the Woods and the whole idea of mm. um, the ancient ones and the need to satisfy these beings with ritualistic sacrifices. And I think at the same time, there's a difference in the fact that because obviously Wes Craven is playing himself in the film and he's reflecting specifically on his own career, unlike um, in terms of the kind of horror genre as a whole, which is what Cabin does. Mm. I do think that while they have a similarity there, the other differences as well, there is, there is perhaps a sense of responsibility mm. on the part of Wes Craven. And there is kind of this idea of, you know, oh my God, I've fed into this ecosystem. I've created a monster, etc. That I think makes it so interesting. It's Wes Craven at his most Oppenheimer-esque, I'd say, <laughs> where he's sort of going like, what have I done? Like, oh my God, we have to fix this. Mm -hmm. Please, Heather, take up the mantle of Nancy. Help me destroy this evil that I've unleashed accidentally into the world. Um, and part of his reasoning for why the evil is so pronounced and why this malignant force is so hell-bent on causing havoc is because the trilogy ended with the death of Freddy, mm. which angered this ancient evil presence. Yeah, it's not enough. that A director can't just turn around and say, okay, we've had our fun, that's it, no more Freddy Krueger stories. That there's still this supernatural, and I suppose in a literal sense, obviously in terms of the film, it's the supernatural entity. But in the literal sense, this kind of subconscious desire on the part of kind of the whole collective public to kind of be kind of fed more horror, to not mm. be able to accept a horror where the ending is the defeat of the evil. And talking about the ultimate evil entity plaguing mankind, I think it's so apt that Freddy transforms into a snake at the end. <laughs> you know, Adam and Eve, yeah. the snake, Temptation. the tempting snake. Isn't that perfect? I think that was such an astute little observation from Wes. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing about your word choice of just such an astute little observation. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you think there are overarching implications there for kind of religion and kind of the terror that religion inflicts on people. I don't actually know what Wes Craven's Ooh. religious views were. Yeah, I'm not you know, sure. He could, was... he could have been a committed Christian for all I know. In terms of storytelling, I think you can definitely involve religion. Mm. Whether or not you believe in an orthodoxy or you're devoutly Catholic or you actually believe Bible stories, for example, mm. those are almost prototypic versions of those archetypal stories that you see cropping up again and again and again. Like we said with Cabin in the Woods, you know, these are stories that are being told over and over just with different skins, mm. you know? So I think it was very cool to have, almost in a kind of it-like way, you know how Pennywise has his true form as the spider, you know? That's very much the same thing going on, the idea of an archetype hiding at the core of this uh, creature that can shapeshift or take on temporary forms to frighten or pander to a certain kind of fear in a certain time. If Freddy is the, the most recent form of this ancient, ancient evil, 
then I think it's so cool that you see those layers stripped away and at the centre of it all is the snake. What do you think about the idea as well that especially kind of Wes Craven's whole speech in the middle of the film is also partly a metaphor, again, as you say, in terms of consumerism for kind of Freddy Krueger as kind of like this unstoppable entity, which, you know, is beyond his control and beyond the boundaries of the story in terms of Freddy Krueger as kind of a symbol of kind of like the film industry. And I say industry, obviously, in the capitalist sense, in terms of he becomes this kind of commercialised figure with mm. wide reach. I mean, obviously, there's an interview scene where Heather is like, oh, you know, like all the kids know who Freddy Krueger is. He's like Santa Claus, you know, another big symbol of consumerism. Yeah, and he kind of comes out to the audience and everyone's like, yeah, Freddy. Yeah. <laughs> He's and like, like a, yeah, absolute celebrity. To some yeah. extent, perhaps in a weird way as well, kind of writing this film um, is kind of Wes Craven's way of kind of literally acting out the plot of the film and kind of containing that kind of unstoppable commercial entity which has gone far beyond the actual contents of the scripts that he wrote, kind of boxing it back up again and kind of claiming ownership over it again. I think it works quite well in that sense because I suppose what happened to Freddy Krueger with the subsequent um, Nightmare on Elm Street films, Mm. I'd just like to say, by the way, guess what? What? I watched Nightmare on Elm Street. Well done. <laughs> Ta-da. The I'm levels not of dedication. Anymore. Also, by the way, listeners, I'd just like to clarify that I had already seen Nightmare on Elm Street. So okay. I don't have to okay. brag about it. It's not a competition. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd already done it ages ago. But, you know, whatever. I'm not going to lie. I don't think Freddy was really that frightening to begin with. Maybe it's just the fact that the film is of its time. Yeah, it's also the fact that you're probably seeing it for the first time as a 22 year old, 23 year old. 23, unfortunately. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. That's embarrassing for you. I'm 22, by I'm the way, old. just so everyone knows. But um, in a sense that I guess it is also very much kind of like a teen horror. So, you know, maybe if you were a little 15-year-old watching it for the first time, you'd have been shitting I'd yourself. Be freaked out. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, so a character that began his existence as this terrifying creature who then got brought down to the level of humanity, got like hyper-humanized with the, the following sequels, became a figure of parody more than a figure of real horror. I think Wes Craven definitely sought to take the character Freddy and then re-mystify him, I suppose, mm. through this whole idea of uh, ancient, latent evil and connecting Freddy directly to that sense of unknowable, unfathomable, primal nastiness. Uh, it really takes him back out of the human realm that yeah. that you see um, typified in the chat show sequence with Heather. I mean, even his design is kind of different in this film compared to the previous ones. It's kind of more... What did you think about that? Because that was a that's a thing that people have brought up, the idea of... Um, well, the intention behind it being that they wanted to assert that this was the real Freddy. You know, this isn't the film Freddy. This is yeah. ancient evil entity Freddy. I don't know. He kind of looks, I thought he looked a bit weirdly less, he's more mus- muscly, not in the sense of being hench. I mean, as in Hunky visible Freddy. muscles rather than burn victim. Yeah. You know what I mean? In this film. I don't actually know if it is any scarier. He's more slick. Also, can I just share with the class an anecdote about one time when I went to a pub quiz and there was a round at the start where it was like, oh, name the character, like the picture round. And um, Freddy Krueger was one of the answers on the sheet. And for some reason, I just had a complete brain fart moment and proudly announced to everyone on the rest of the team 
that that was Wurzel Gummidge. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I had to get that shame out of me oh. somehow. <laughs> Could you imagine field after field of Freddy Scarecrows? <laughs> that's so, oh. that's terrifying, but also iconic. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we've just invented, if any Wes Craven was still here, we could go and propose it to him. Is he, st- is he? Oh. Wes Craven's dead. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he died about three-ish years ago. Oh no. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, rest oh, in 2015. Peace, 2015 he died. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's actually unacceptable that I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's actually so sad. Yeah. I wonder what he'd think of the new screen. Do you think he's spinning in his grave? I haven't seen it yet, so don't ask me. I think he'd, I think he'd appreciate the fact that it's just gone so far. Yeah. If you know what I mean? It's still going. But then again, maybe, you know, he'd be like, well, maybe exactly as we were just saying, maybe he'd be like, wow, what has Ghostface become? What's the monster that I've created? You know, it's completely out of my creative Mm. orbit at this point. Oh my God. If I only Wes Craven was still here, maybe he would make a Wes Craven's new nightmare equivalent for the Scream franchise. I don't know. But at the same time, that kind of makes no sense because of the entire premise of Scream. But whatever. Wes Craven's... Fresh scream. Yeah, you know. it doesn't really work. But <laughs> anyway, what were we saying? We were saying about the where's his little speech. Yes, where's his little speech? The the idea of like reclaiming the figure of Freddy. I also wanted to ask you something related to that. So, in terms of the kind of popularization of Freddy and his kind of status as an icon of pop culture, what do you think that the film perhaps has to say? about the impact that that has on children in particular, because obviously a a key subplot of the film is kind of, well, I I say subplot, probably really the main plot, is kind of like Dylan's increasing like paranoia and like refusal to go to sleep and like the way that watching his mother's films impacts on him and kind of allows the supernatural beast that calls itself Freddy Krueger to have all the more control over him. And I don't know, do you think there is a kind of element of won't someone please think of the children to this film in a way that, you know, I don't think it's even as present in any of the other films yeah. that we've discussed yet for this series. Because a lot of what we've said has been like, oh, you know, think of, think of the impact on audiences and their desensitization to yeah. violence. But actually also, you know, horror is scary for kids. And perhaps, you know, there is also a commentary here about the way in which society because we need horror so much and because we relish in it so much, we at the same time do kind of allow children to be collateral damage. Yeah. I think everyone can testify to the experience of being way too young for something and watching it and then just being disturbed for weeks on end. Mm. You know, what was your one? Um, I bet there was, there was, there must've been a film that you watched that you were too young for and you just thought, Oh my God. Oh my God. Hang on. There was one, but I can't remember it right now. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think. Mine was when my brother pretended that he was putting something nice on the TV when I was like, I must have been seven. And it ended up being sore. And what? It, was, <laughs> it was the it was the scene with the key behind the eye. I can't remember which saw that is. Um, I haven't actually seen any saw films, can't bring myself to do it. But I just remember this whole process and 
was shocking. I was just so disturbed mm. and I didn't see the, you know, the result with the the trap shutting on his head or anything like that. But it was just the idea of the key being behind his eye was just so overwhelmingly horrible to me. And I remember that just being on my mind. See, that sounds to me like it's not just a case of, you know, something that, you know, scared you as a kid. And I was like, you should just not have been watching that under any circumstances. That's what happens when you have an older brother who agrees to look after you. My older brothers were nice to me. So how about that? Wow. That's you told. It's all right for some, isn't it? But um, I was scared by Watership Down. Have you ever seen it? With like the fields of blood and like the black rabbit of death. I have, but the crazy I thing about that one oh is like, god. in the case of Saw... <laughs> is that Watership Down? Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, I thought it was just like a quaint little animation. It is a quaint little animation and it is also marketed at children. That's the thing that gets me. Because at least in your case, oh. it's like, yeah, you just should not have been watching Saw. And Saw's a horror. Watership Down isn't even a horror. <laughs> it's just this nice little film about rabbits. And then... The death... Yeah. The de- what was it? The Dark Rabbit? The Black Rabbit of Death. The black yeah, at the death. end, and then there's That's this also terrifying. one scene where like the fields like drip with blood, and they go bright red. Oh God, and it's really scary. Didn't like you it as what? a kid. Cartoons are actually they have the potential to be really frightening. They do. Honestly, won't someone think of the children? Won't they? For once, even Disney. Have you seen that? You know that bit in Sleeping Beauty when. Maleficent appears in the fireplace yeah. and, and there's that really creepy music going na, 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 <laughs> na, na, na. and then she gets led away you know and she's in a kind of stupor yeah that still terrifies me to this day still oh I was <laughs> yes, mean to that as a kid that, I didn't care if I'm alone in the house I, I if that pops into my head before I go to sleep <laughs> all the lights come back on I go and check all the doors again it's actually ridiculous that sounds like a you problem it's terrifying Anyway, with regards to Dylan, what do you think then about, like, do you think Wes is essentially saying, look, look what we're doing to our youth? Oh, because, you know, I, even though I've just said, oh, you know, it's a little bit, won't someone think of the children you know, I don't really believe that Wes Craven, horror author, would make a film with the main message of horror is bad because it scares the kiddies. I, th- I think the idea of it does get, casualize in the sense that you roll your eyes whenever someone makes the claim Mm. that horror is scarring or it poisons minds that kind of thing but there is a certain amount of truth in it no it does make sense and i think something that's also interesting is perhaps kind of an alternative way of looking at it that could also arguably posit that well i don't think it's an alternative way because i think it can coexist with kind of the won't someone please think of the children thing we just said but um the idea that Dylan's plight in this film could be some kind of metaphor for the way in which we push our adult neuroses onto children. Because like Freddie starts off in this film as like Heather's problem. She's the one who starts off having mm. the nightmares. And it's only because of her like paranoia and like fear for Dylan that the kind of fear itself then kind of turns around and it's kind of transferred yeah. onto Dylan. Does that make sense? It's just a little, it's just a little thought I had, you know? No, I like that. And he absorbs yeah. 
those fears that had nothing to do with him in the first place and they become his fears, mm. you know? And I think that speaks massively to the idea of hereditary conditions as well. Yeah. And that is lurking in the background of this film. No, The idea absolutely. that there have been cases in her family of mental illness or mental un- uh, instability. I think, again, I think there's really a coexistence of these two ideas on one hand of like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, this is my kind of life's work and like, look what it's doing to my child. And at the same time, there is a kind of a sense of the hypocrisy of the, oh my God, Dylan, don't you dare watch that. What are you thinking? You know, you're too young for it. It's like, well, you know, you you put it out there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You made it. No, exactly. And so, yeah, I think there's this kind of tension in the film of these two kind of different poles of, oh, what responsibility does the genre of horror have towards children? And I like how it resolves it as well, Mm. because I think it definitely, the way that the film ties that up, it's not definitive by any means, but it works so neatly within Wes Craven's own, how would you say it, approach to these questions, to these issues of, of media and horror. And, you know, that quote that I mentioned, the idea of wanting to see your inner fears, Mm. not only externalised, but dealt with and put into a narrative. That's exactly what you see at the end of the film. Exactly, because they literally read, it kind of gets contained into a script. And then all of a sudden it kind of becomes safe and sanitary. And like Heather's able to read it to Dylan, almost to actually comfort him rather than to scare him. And it's okay because it's in the script. There's definitely elements of like dissociation there as well, mm. where you deal with very real, very present traumas by thinking of them as not to do with you, but mm. creating like a character version of yourself. Yeah. That can then struggle through the traumas and the problems and who you then see emerge at the end, renewed and victorious. Yeah, absolutely. And by reading it back to her child, Dylan, she then endows this like chaos that's been plaguing them with a sense of meaning and particularly the loss of the father. Yeah, to be fair, I did think there was one little thing about the film that did kind of irk me a bit and it was the fact that like Dylan's dad dying, very sad, but like they kind of forget about it a little bit. Into the- okay, well, no, I guess she's very preoccupied with, you know, Dylan's episodes and all that. But I think the problem is <laughs> that there's just a lot going on. Yeah. There is a lot going on. There's like, you've got Freddie... Mm-hmm. popping up, scraping people. And then you've got Dylan acting up, having his problems. And then you've got the the, the father die. Yeah, the and doctor I think, <laughs> thinks she's abusing Dylan. Yeah, you there's know. just a lot. And I think the film does struggle sometimes to work out like what it's going to yeah. pay um, attention to in terms of screen time. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. What What is the priority here? Because that you've got this like ancient primal evil that Wes Craven's talking about. You've got the idea of grief, of you know, loss of a partner and that entire thing. You've got the idea of of um, mental conditions in children, um, responsibilities as a parent. It's all converging. And to a certain extent, the film does kind of crumble under the weight of all of all the themes. It's, it's too many themes. themes. You're carrying too many themes, Wes. Come on. Um, it at least manages to very nicely tie up the, the subplot of Dylan and, and D- Dylan's traumas with the idea of Freddy and the idea of story and evil it all kind of that does wind around to a nice sense of closure in my opinion um so one thing that I thought was really interesting about the film was the way in which kind of tying back into the things we've already discussed um it focuses also not only on the impact that 
horror has on, say, for example, the viewer, also in this case on the performer and kind of the way in which people like Heather and people like Robert, like their careers have been defined by this kind of like, again, like Wes, this symbol that has kind of gotten completely out of their control, but in kind of a different way because they're performers rather than creators in that sense. They seem to be more like it goes after them first. Does that make sense? In a sense, like Wes yeah. is there as this voice who can like a voice of authority who can tell her that, yeah, this is what you need to do. Sorry, like you're the one who's going to have to deal with this mess, even though, yeah. you know, it's my creation. Um, because yeah, you were the original Nancy, like you were the original poster girl for all this and you're like the face of the thing. And same with Robert mm. Englund, for example, like he obviously is kind of implied to have been kind of somehow disappeared by like the spirit of Freddie or whatever, because when Heather tries to call him, and then it's kept yeah. kind of unresolved in the in a way, isn't yes. it? Yes. Although what is really interesting is apparently in the end credits, um, well, I don't say apparently, this is true. Um, in the end credits, <laughs> it's like Robert England as Robert England, and then it's like Freddy Krueger as himself. So they're credited mm. separately, even though it obviously is actually Robert England playing him. But I thought that was really interesting, that. the fact that like as kind of the faces of this kind of creature this concept it has spiralled out of control and become like a popular icon. It kind of falls onto Heather and Robert's shoulders before even Wes's to kind of, you know, deal with the consequences of that. Wes Craven is a bit like one of those World War One colonels who's <laughs> like, right, I'm going to sit back here in this office in a nice, comfortable village. And I'm going to write my little script. Yes, like I'm going to give you your orders. Yes, thank you so much on, for playing... Nancy again, Heather, you're a legend. Take up your arms once more and kill that nasty Freddy. It's like he <laughs> recruits her and he's just like, yeah, now you go out, you put yourself in the firing line. Mm. I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait. <laughs> I'm just going to wait for it to be over. And then I'll send you a little message saying, well done. <laughs> I think, I, th I think Wes should have like, I don't know, helped a bit more. Yeah. But he did tell Heather what was going on. And again, yeah, I guess it is like you're saying, kind of like that World War One general way of like, okay, I'll tell you what. And I guess that is kind of literally what obviously directors do with actors. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah, I'll sit in my nice chair. You guys just do what I tell you to do. You guys go in front of the camera. Yeah. And you put yourselves in harm's way. Yeah. And, oh, I love and that. And you literally I think do. That's so cool. Because, did, you know, there's another thing, I don't know if you knew this. You know how in the film, for example, one of the ways in which the original film is kind of shown to have impacted Heather's life is the fact that she has that stalker, you know, like constantly references the film as well, and like calls her on the phone, et cetera, and like mm. repeats Freddie's words. She had a stalker in real life as well that did that. And Wes Craven was like, kind of put that in the film. And she was like, yeah, all right. Wow. And I think that's so interesting because at the end of the day, with acting, when you become kind of like the public face of these films, you just kind of capture the public imagination, you kind of almost like lose your own kind of like identity and image. You kind of become like a thing yeah. for other people to imprint on. And again, I think that's what we really say. I was saying earlier about um, kind of, especially the way like Dylan is treated as well and kind of like, it's about, oh, you know, it's like Heather imprinting her own neuroses on to Dylan. But actually maybe you could say that like Heather is targeted in the first place because, you know, as an actress, as a public face, like she becomes this convenient kind of like, avatar for us to imprint our own insecurities on mm. she used to one in the original film as nancy who's kind of actually dealing with resolving the horror that viewers have within them 
and containing it and performing it as a nice, neat narrative. And then even then, within obviously the actual film of New Nightmare itself, Heather is able to have the most power and have the most confidence against Freddie when she actually kind of like becomes Nancy. So even beyond Heather, the actress, who is mm. already kind of like way more in it than someone like Wes, who's behind the scenes, obviously Nancy, the character, is kind of the person who's deepest in it of all. I mean, Freddie specifically wants to kind of lure her out of the shadows. Mm. And she is credited. And it's not just a case of like, oh, Heather kind of like plays Nancy in the film and that's how she defeats Freddie. Like there is this sense, I think, that she kind of literally becomes Nancy. And again, in the credits, yeah. she's credited as playing both herself and Nancy. And she also said in an interview, apparently, that in a weird way, as in the real actress, that she kind of, when she was playing Nancy in the film, it felt more like she was playing herself than it did when she was actually literally playing herself, weirdly. Because I bet playing someone who is meant to be you, mm. written in the script with lines written by Wes, it would be such a weird experience and it would, it would feel very uncanny and it would feel very uncomfortable, surely. Yeah. And it couldn't possibly feel as comfortable as having a character that is distanced enough from you yeah. in their personality and their traits that you could then feel comfortable imbuing that persona with a sense of you yeah, exactly. rather than trying to like toe this weird line of being you but not being you at the same time. That must be a very peculiar experience. They also asked her real life husband to play Chase, but he was like, no, I can't do that because that would be too weird. Linking this back to Barbarian Sound Studio, mm. remember that one? Oh, All the way back then? that was a classic. That was a classic. So Wes in this film is such an interesting foil to Santini mm. because he is really aware of the sacrifices that Heather, the actress, is making by putting herself in that position as an actress, you know, and performing the role of Nancy and taking that mantle on again. Whereas Santini, yeah, Santini is the complete like, opposite. Eh, screw you guys. Do what I want. Absolutely. We're making it he's art here. Like, so, he's so absorbed in the idea of like bringing his creation to life. Mm. There's no sense of social responsibility. There's no sense of like needing to look out for the people that are putting themselves on the line by being in the film, by acting those roles, by using their voices and giving giving the voices to you in the same way that yeah. a, like an actor who has filmed gives you their image. There's a trade-off, you know? And I think Santini is just so unaware of that, whereas Wes in this film is so plagued by that. Well, the thing is, when you talk about kind of like the orthodoxy of the horror genre and kind of the canon, I think what's really interesting, as we kind of already mentioned in terms of, kind of self-flagellation almost, of kind of Wes's speech in the middle, is the fact that Pretty much, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe not all of the sequels, but the original film, it had only been like, what, 15 years? And already it's, yeah. it was, I'm pretty sure, considered like a core part of the horror canon. Like it was considered a classic. And so I think it's very interesting in the sense that if Wes Craven is kind of challenging the canon, he does so kind of from a place of special authority because he is a person who kind of exists within that canon. And the character mm. being used here is also from that canon. And so I think, yeah, what he's trying to do here is to obviously kind of take a step out. Well, that's what meta horror is. That's what meta fictional devices are. Kind of take a step outside of the genre and kind of 
ask why do we kind of repeat certain tropes? Mm. I think using metafiction when it's not in a sort of nihilistic framework where you're just trying to to create a sense of being bamboozled or like, oh, where do we go from here? Yeah. When it's constructive, I think it's definitely aiming to revitalize, you know, and horror has had, you know, it's it's there have been many moments where it's needed a good defibrillate, you know. Oh yeah. It's kind of also at the same time a little bit of a kick up the backside for the genre by forcing it not only to confront its own kind of like repetitions that doesn't just because I think because just this aspect of it where it is about kind of like asking questions about, oh, you know, as we've already discussed, what's the impact of horror on like young minds, for example? Like, oh, what happens when horror becomes kind of commercialized beyond the point of recognition by the creator? And I think there is that real desire then to really kind of like bring something new to the conversation. And it's worth looking at what was happening at the same time, you know. You have this gradual interest in metafiction as applied to horror turning up, Mm. particularly in the early 90s. But at the same time, there's this sort of gothic revitalization going on. So Laura Wirick pointed out that you had Dracula in 1992 with Gary Oldman and and then Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with... Uh, Kenneth Branagh, ETC in 1994, same year as New Nightmare. Mm. It's funny because these are films that go back to the core. They go back to the very source of what we consider modern horror, which are the gothic masterpieces, you know, works like Frankenstein and Dracula and Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And you can see the parallel in Wes Craven reconnecting Freddy with this idea of an unknowable um, lurking evil. Mm. It's that effort to elementalize or um, take something that's strayed through consumerism back to its source. And Laura Wirick herself has dubbed it as a kind of paradoxical originality where you end up going back to the very thing that's been done to death which is Dracula and Frankenstein, but then within a modern horror climate that's been saturated with iteration upon iteration of figures that have just seemed to like, you know, drift further and further from their origin. This is true for Freddy as well. Yeah. That kind of real steadfast, very dogged attachment to the literary text at the bottom of it all just weirdly comes across as, whoa, fresh, you know, new. Mm. Wow. I think that's cool because it's such a different approach to the metafictional approach, the meta-horror approach that Wes Craven took with Scream and New Nightmare. It's like it's complete opposite. But at the same time, they share a core intention, which is to rewire the, the signifiers with the, that base sense of what made them scary in the first place. I was actually going to make a comment about how, oh, I was quite, you know, it's kind of, bringing horror out from its kind of repetitions of the same things ad nauseum and kind of the way in which that connects to obviously the references, the literal repetitions of motifs from the very first Nightmare on Elm Street film, such as, you know, the way Julie dies, for example, by being kind of like dragged around the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And how that's like a direct repetition. That was a very cool sequence to be fair. But also what you're saying about that kind of like Going back to basics. Yeah, I really see that as well. I think in that sense of repetition and conscious copying, it's self-aware in the way that it 
reproduces the idea of commodification and those rhythms of turning something into a product that, that then gets repeated and repeated and repeated ad nauseum. On a broader level, it is a way for people to perhaps navigate the sense of crass repetition of films as they become much more akin to mass-produced commodities in a, in a hyper-consumerist world. Mm. And so for looking for patterns and rhythms of meaning amongst these films, it's quite reassuring in a way because it, it makes you feel like you have a sense of a compass or by tying them all back to a sense of like elemental truth, it definitely makes you feel more comforted in a in an age that is inherently restless because we're just surrounded by these imitations of other things all the time. Mm. Because obviously we are coming at this with the benefit actually of doing this in reverse um, chronological order. So we have already looked at, okay, well, we haven't looked at every single meta horror film from the past yeah, sorry, 30 guys. years ever. Sorry, we, we will also, do better next we are, time. We have been woefully biased in picking oh we have yeah almost entirely i mean barring two two british it? films and barbarian sounds yeah. to you everything it's else all american. american films but i think the meta in terms of what we've been looking at as metafiction it is very tied up in that yeah. idea of of deconstructing american mythology yes that's true i do think they are also specific critiques of kind of like american mass culture in particular but what i was going to ask you is would you say Therefore, that meta-horror has been completely subsumed into the orthodoxy. Would you say that we are in a situation now where something like, I guess Scream is a special example because Scream is obviously so popular and Scream has kind of sadly gone away, I suppose. of Not sadly, because it's good to get new Scream content, but it has gone away of Nightmare on Elm Street and kind of done the exact same thing, to be honest, um, mm. as we mentioned before. <laughs> um so yeah, would you say that therefore kind of the current horror orthodoxy is meta horror? It's interesting because I remember saying in the Cabin in the Woods episode, or oh, imagine if all horror films became Cabin in the Woods. All horror mm. films were so ridiculously into the idea of deconstructing genre the whole time that you couldn't actually sit back and enjoy a good old fashioned scare because it was constantly trying to subvert itself the whole time. Yeah. And you can clearly see that that's not the case, which is nice. And it's a relief because if it were, like I said, it would be terrible. But meta horror is definitely there yeah. as, an as, as, as an important and popular part of the contemporary landscape of horror. So I think the most out there on the nose examples of metafiction in horror, for example, Cam in the Woods, they have served their purpose. And I think... Scream can continue having films bolted onto the end of it till Kingdom Come. People still enjoy it. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking, you know what I mean? But I think it's played its part in just opening up the conversation and it's created a platform where people can now feel more free to de depart from that cycle that was initially set up with the onslaught of slasher films in the, in the 70s and how they got replicated to the point of of absurdity of parody in the 80s you don't see that sense of needing to unpack genre so much in films like sense from barbarian sound studio it's more of a nostalgic ode i guess maybe it's just kind of exhaustion from the fact that we have been doing this series in particular but after i feel like you know if there was a new release now 
that was like, oh, we're going to deconstruct the horror genre by... Okay, actually, to be fair, that's quite harsh of me because I did watch Censor literally last year and I did enjoy it. I did think Censor had something new to say. But then I guess maybe what's really interesting about Censor is kind of the British context of it all. Mm. And the fact that, like, obviously, looking at it in terms of from the perspective of a film census, I've never seen any film, horror or not, about kind of like film classification before. So I thought that was really interesting. But in general, I think if I saw another like meta horror film coming out now that was like, oh, you know, we're we're holding up a mirror to the horror genre and asking why it's so obsessed with violence and killing and is it good for society or not? I'd kind of like, oh my God, we've had this discussion. Deja vu. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. So there is a point where I do wonder, I don't know, maybe has meta horror kind of started to run its course has it become subsumed into the orthodoxy because to be fair i think even films that aren't really meta horror films maybe there is kind of still a subtle element of like self deconstruction present in them but um i think it's one that will be interesting to kind of watch as um kind of the years continue to go by but yeah. i think obviously again as we're talking about new nightmare kind of new nightmare is one of the first films to really do this and i don't know if Maybe there is some kind of prescience, perhaps, to the film that this is going to become. Because, you know, like New Nightmare wasn't even the final Nightmare on Elm Street film. There was more mm. after <laughs> it this. It just kept going. It, it was wasn't a kind enough. of island of self-reflection, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a bit like an intermission. where it was like, just anyway. Like, hmm, let's just hold up and think about this. And then it just resumed Back business as usual. Because at the end yeah. of the day, I suppose, still, there's so much of the film as well that is still like really embroiled in like the entire kind of film industry because obviously you've got a scene at the start where they're literally on set um you've got all their kind of like meetings with um new line cinema um kind of like the interviews etc then the literal script at the end i still think there is kind of this also sense that everything within the film obviously it is literally a film that has been made so to some extent it's inescapable but i think also the, the fact that the film is kind of bookended with these kinds of features of the production process so the sfx guys on set at the start and then the reading of the script at the end the fact it's bookended and framed like that i think is the sense that like not only is this a film this is a film in the film industry because there are ways for example for a film to kind of acknowledge the fact that it's a film without kind of like actually kind of pulling away Mm. the kind of fourth wall not fourth wall but like the kind of curtain i suppose the behind the scenes curtain kind of looking behind the camera Heather, what did she call it in the interview? She called it, she was like, it's not breaking the fourth wall, it's breaking the fourth dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Just so intense. But you know what I mean? In the sense that there's a way for films to kind of point out that they're films without acknowledging their production process. And I think the fact that the film does that kind of is an acknowledgement of the wider industry and perhaps kind of like a kind of knowing nod to the fact that like, yes, okay, here, here I am you know, kind of rallying against what the industry has done to my creation Mm. and kind of taking a bit of control of myself. This is my stage. But here I am still feeding in, you know, like making another instalment in my like lucrative franchise. It's going to make lots of money for lots of executives, you know, putting Mm. Heather, the actress, kind of through it again. And Robert, the cycle does to some extent continue. And obviously it literally did outside in the real world. Because it wasn't the end of Freddy Krueger. 
I'm gonna need a, I'm gonna need a good long sit down after this series is over. Not to say I haven't enjoyed it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's been an intense one. It's been tough on the noggin. Well, you'll be pleased to know that we're only doing one more episode on Meta Horror, and then we will finally be free. We'll bid farewell in style with Videodrome. Yeah, a nice slice of Cronenberg for you. I was going to say people might be asking, but. but- how can there be one more episode of, of, of Meta Horror left when, as I've, we've all just agreed, Wes Craven's New Nightmare was the first ever film to do it? Well, it wasn't, obviously, How? was it? First to do it in this way. <laughs> Wes Craven would like to think. First to do it in this way, but there's still a little bit more to be tapped, I think, back in the 80s. I think Videodrome will be an interesting one because it's kind of going to be a bit like a like an epilogue slash prologue, depending on how you look at it. Mm. Videodrome isn't necessarily as meta in its intent and in its out and in its effect as the other films that we've covered, but I think you can see the foundations of meta horror and mm. a lot of the issues that would then become so tied up in applications of metafiction to the horror genre. They're all there. Well, Nick, don't spoil it all for everyone next week. Sorry, yeah, I'm so We've sorry. We've got to keep them coming back for more. Well, that just about wraps up things on Wes Craven's New Nightmare 1994. We thoroughly recommend you give it a watch if you haven't already and can't believe it, but yeah, it's the final episode of Meta Horror next week and we'd love you to join us for that. We are dying for your recommendations as well. If you have any films in particular that you would like us to cover, ideas for future series, please send those our way. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe as always. Give us a rating and take care. We'll see you soon.